Dash Open podcast. Dash Open is your source for interesting conversations about open source and other technologies from the open source program office at Verizon Media, home to many leading brands, including Yahoo, AOL, Huffington Post, Tumblr, TechCrunch, and many more. My name is Gil, and I'm on the open source team at Verizon Media. Today on the show, I'm excited to chat with Mike Martin. Mike is Verizon Media's Associate General Counsel, focused on open source standards and patents. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. Thanks, Gil. It's a pleasure to join. <laughs> it sure is. Mike, you and I, we've been working together for many years. We know each other quite well. I know you're a lawyer and I know you code. What I wanted to do today is actually talk about an area of open source law that is a little less less focused on. I will I will just say, I guess, because you know we like to say these things, this isn't like legal advice and I'm not asking you for legal advice and certainly not suggesting that what you're providing is we're just, we're talking about this stuff and listeners who are interested in real legal advice that they should follow should find their lawyer and talk to them. But, you know, really in that context, I kind of want to just, you know, chew the fat on a topic called the Contributor License Agreement, the CLA, which is a little different than, you know, copyright or licenses or, you know, traditional open source licenses. It's a little bit of a, a thing that often gets, I don't know, forgotten, but is relevant. So I guess to start, because you are the lawyer, can you tell us what a contributor license agreement is? A contributor license agreement is actually a contract, right? It's a contract between a person, which can be an individual, or it could be an organization, usually a corporation of some kind, on the one hand, and a copyright owner of some open source project on the other. And I think that's probably the simplest place to start. Yeah, it's, it's just this agreement. And, and you know, every CLA can have different terms. And that's part of what makes it fun and exciting as a lawyer is to, to have to dig through these CLAs. Because, of course, unlike the open source license agreements that the projects may be subject to, right, the CLAs themselves are not really standardized. Well, so, so Mike, let me ask you, from the perspective of a project, why would a project want a contributor to sign a CLA? And then from the perspective of a contributor, you know, what goes on in the mind of the contributor before he or she signs a CLA? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a number of different ways that you could kind of analyze this, but maybe one helpful kind of organizing principle between all this is just to talk about trust, right? Trust is something that's just so important to the collaborative development of any kind of value. I mean, just in general, right? So now we're talking even more broadly than the open source world or even software development, right? Trust is fundamental to people working together over an extended period of time in order to build something, to make something that is going to be of mutual value to them and you know, perhaps hopefully to other people. And you have special problems with making things that are as abstract, I'll say, as source code, which is, of course, you know, the basis for all software, which is that, you know, especially now where we have technology that allows us to copy things digitally, it's very easy, right, to take work that somebody spent months or years building and then just, you know, rip it off 
right? And, and copy it and use it on your own. And, and so I would say that in the, I guess in the first instance, right, we have this predicament of people, you know, wanting to invest time in doing work both on their own and together as a group, but not really having any good way to ensure that they're not going to get cheated, right? Like, what's the basis of trust? Now, I mean, of course, there's lots of lots of answers to that question. I mean, maybe you and I know each other, you know, maybe we work at the same company, right? In the abstract, that's the fundamental problem. And I think this is where copyright, you know, came in, you know, first 400 years ago under the statute of Anne in England. The sovereigns recognized, look, you know, we've got these great craftsmen out there. I mean, of course, they weren't software developers, you know, they were authors and publishers of authors work and they had to have some way to make sure that they weren't going to get ripped off so so copyright came along and and so copyright that's fundamentally what it's supposed to be about is providing a mechanism for the author of some work to be able to call upon as a last resort a sovereign authority to punish somebody for cheating but copyright is fairly you know, blunt instrument, we'll say. And so, of course, you know, you want to give people ways to slice and dice it to fit whatever their needs are in a particular situation. And and so, you know, I think maybe I've gone back too far, but you know, hopefully that's helpful in kind of organizing, you know, your thoughts around, well, what, what are we doing here? Why do we have all of this legal language? You know, there is a point, and it's actually a fairly fundamental and profound point that, you know, we need to foster trust among people who don't know each other and have no reason to trust each other. And without it, we're not going to be able to, to build these incredibly complex things that, you know, require us to work together. Okay. So like a very, a very pragmatic way for, let's say I wanted to cheat you is if you were running an open source project and I wanted to contribute to that project and I contribute code to that project for all, you know, I took that code from somebody. Like, I didn't write that code. The fact that I'm the contributor, you don't know me. If you don't know me, and I just gave you a whole bunch of really good code, I might have taken that from somebody who really didn't authorize me to give you that code, right? That might be my company that I work for who didn't, you know, give me permission. And I might be doing it, you know, not because I want to hurt you, but because after giving you the code, I want to interview with you to hire me, you know, saying, hey, I gave you all this code. Would you hire me for a job? Like it might, the whole thing could be like a setup. So, so you need to make sure that I'm not cheating you. And, you know, I should represent in some manner that the code I'm giving you is actually code that I have the right to give you. Right. And so that's kind of what the CLA does, right? That's right. That's right. I mean, the failure modes that are available in any given situation are as you know infinite as the variations of human nature, right? Right. So that's one. Well, so if I wanted to contribute to, let's say back to that scenario, I want to contribute to your project and you say, I don't know, Gil, before you contribute to this project, you need to sign a CLA. And I say, oh, okay, sure. Like I sign anything that's given to me. Is that okay? Or, you know, what, what calculus goes <laughs> What, like what calculus do, does yeah. it go? Like, can just anyone sign a CLA or is there like more to it? Yeah, I mean, so I'm really glad, you know, that we kind of took this back to the roots. Now, in, in the case of an open source license, I mean, first of all, it's not it's not as long and the CLAs are even shorter than the open source licenses. They're usually like at longest, like five or six paragraphs. And they're very 
usually carefully drafted to be in language that isn't as legal easy, you know, as uh, not as much legal ease as you would typically find in a commercial contract. And so, you know, in order to ensure that we are maintaining this trust, and we really do want for everybody who signs one of these things to understand what they're signing. Well, let's take that corner, actually. Let's turn the corner for a moment, because I think we've just established that CLAs are a good thing, and you should protect your project, and, you know, it, it helps mitigate certain things. But, you know, let me give you a scenario, and, you know, tell me what you think. So here's the scenario. You have a project, and I want to contribute to that project. You ask me to sign a CLA, and I do so. And actually, I, I'm diligent. I go to, you know, the, the legal department of my company, and I make sure that they review the text and they approve it. And, you know, I did everything right. And you receive the CLA and the, you receive my contributions and everyone's happy, except I switch companies. And now I'm working for a different company. And you don't know that. Like, I didn't have to tell you. I mean, I guess maybe I should have told you, but I didn't, right? I still have my same GitHub account that I used for pull requests against your account. And now I, representing my new company, continue to contribute to your project. No CLA signed there. Mm-hmm. Seems like there's a, a hole in the process. Yeah, that's a pretty big hole. And I think this is one of the big downsides to, I'll call it the traditional CLAs, is that there's sort of a checkpoint of getting one signed before somebody's allowed to contribute to a project. But, you know, if they're using a personal email address, then they can do exactly what you just described and, uh, you know, completely circumvent that checkpoint by, you know, after they've moved to a new company. And I mean, it might be, you know, helpful to just throw out for those who, you know, haven't really thought it through maybe, or are not lawyers, Everybody who works for a company in the U.S. at least and in many other parts of the world, at least in common law jurisdictions, will sign an agreement with their employer that says that their intellectual property belongs to their employer. And that's just part of the whole system of trust that we've established among employers and employees is that the employees get a paycheck and the employers get the fruits of their labor, which in our economy, and at least if you're a software developer, that's intellectual property. So the copyright belongs to the employer. And so this is a problem because that, you know, Gil has described because the new employer owns the copyright, but the existing CLA is with the old employer. And so it, it has no, puts no obligations on the new employer to make its copyrighted source code available. So there's a logistical problem there that turns into a real legal problem when somebody moves from one company to another. Right. So in other words, I guess it sounds like CLAs are a really good idea in theory, but they fall apart in practice. Like there's just a bunch of holes in the way we're able to implement it that make it less of a protection as as we wished it would be. And, you know, I think that you and I, we've worked together many years, Mike, on projects, and we looked at CLAs favorably saying, well, at the end of the day, we want to protect a project. And gosh, if, if somebody isn't even willing to give us the basic assurance that, you know, it's legit code that they're giving us, well, maybe we don't want that code. I mean, you know, we're, we're asking for a very small hurdle. And then, you know, over time, we've done this so many times that we've realized this kind of isn't working practically. Like practically speaking, there's just so many holes in the process that we've, we've put our heads together and thought about, you know, what are other ways that we could protect 
projects that you know we run in our open source program and and inspired by what other people do and what I think other people might start doing when they really look carefully and say, well, you know, CLAs are good, but, and I'm wondering if you can share your thoughts about, you know, what a person can do, what a, what a project can do to protect, to protect them. Well, I don't know, just continue to protect their project without necessarily relying upon the CLA as a vehicle for that. Let's go back to the trust point just for a moment, because, you know, I think one question that somebody might have listening to this conversation is like, well, look, I get the point about trust and about getting ripped off, but isn't open source, I mean, the whole point is to make that available to everybody. And so, you know, in some sense, like, why do we care, right? Like in the case of open source, you know, this is probably a question that people have. And, and I think, you know, my sense is it's, it's at least part of what's going on when people just sign these things without worrying, you know, or don't sign them when they move to a new employer. They just don't worry about those things because their attitude is, well, look, you know, this is all meant to be in the open anyway. So, and to be honest, like, I don't have a lot of personal experience with scenarios in which open source projects, you know, have, have felt the need, you know, or desire at least to enforce their copyright against third parties. I mean, maybe that's something you could talk a little more about, Gil. Yeah, I, I ran into two cases where they did. I mean, it's, and it's rare. But, you know, rare things happen, right? They just happen rarely. So I have seen it in my experience where um, open source projects do fight uh, for their copyrights. In one case, like, basically, they found infringement. They found where people gave them code that they should have gotten, that, that they should not have had given to them, and they were issued a DMCA takedown. So, like, the thing can happen where open source projects accidentally or potentially purposely it's hard, hard to know or I'm not, not even sure how much that makes a difference I mean, from the perspective of a project if they have code they shouldn't have you know that really shouldn't have been open then that's a problem for them you know that they're not in that business of fighting it out so it happens we yeah. don't use the cla as much anymore we use a commit message a commit message asking the contributor to make some representations What's a representation? You know, a representation is, you know, a, a formal statement that you're making in writing that something that you're saying, right, is true. I mean, that seems, but it's just, it's your, you're making a statement, but it's got more formality associated with that. It's a statement that you are holding out mm-hmm. to another party as something that they can rely upon, right? So that's that's kind of what makes a representation. Now, in a in a formal contract, there would be a section, often a section, you know, that's titled representations and warranties. Mm-hmm. And so this would be a list of specific statements that the counterparty in the transaction is is making to the other party. Like you can rely upon these facts that I'm stating to you to be true. And if they turn out not to be true, that's a breach of the contract and the counterparty can come back and sue for breach of those representations and, and maybe get damages or whatever other, you know, remedies would be available. So the representation that you're talking about that we've sort of adopted and, you know, at least one or two other companies seem to have adopted as a, as a alternative practice to the use of a CLA is designed to provide us, you know, the key components of the stewardship 
that we get, you know, the good stewardship that we get, we get out of a heavier weight CLA process without, yeah, the heavier weight of the CLA process and and also the logistical difficulties that come along with keeping track of who's working at what company and whether that they need to be an individual contributor or a corporate contributor. And do we have the right agreement, you know, given their role, all of that goes away if you're relying on a simple representation that is attached to, you know, every contribution in the form of a comment, for example, on the commit. Right. That just seems like a really great kind of compromise because on the one hand, it's on every commit, you know, so it's there and it's part of the record. And, you know, thankfully Git has that, you know, feature that it preserves the record of the commit, but it's lighter weight. I mean, it's not like, it's not a contract I guess it's somewhere in between Scout's Honor and a contract, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I would say it is not a contract, but it is it is something that could become actionable as a result of, I think the legal you know, term for this would be promissory estoppel, right? Mm-hmm. If I make a promise to you that I'm going to do something, right? And I'm not asking anything in exchange from you for that promise. Mm-hmm. then we can't have a contract because I'm sort of acting unilaterally mm-hmm. in that instance. But it is part of the common law tradition, at least, that if you rely upon that promise and as a result of that reliance, you know, are hurt in some way, that you can come back with a claim of promissory estoppel. You can say, look, you promised me you're going to do this and you didn't. And look, I was I was injured as a result of that promise. So you got to at least make good on on this injury in some way. So I you know I think there's there's a lot of you know of course defenses that you could have to the promissory estoppel that would you know avoid the claim and you know there's there's probably some elements to it that I'm you know forgetting or leaving out that are important. But you know I think that's that's basically what we're looking for here. In in our case, you know if I remember the exact language I could maybe pull it up here, would be helpful. I mean, mostly what we're asking for is a representation of two things, right? One, that the person who's actually making this contribution is aware that the contributions can be subject to the terms of some specific open source license, which in our case, I think is nearly always Apache 2. Yeah. And then second... Project licenses. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, or one of the other open source licenses, you know, just that it's going to be subject to open source because, you know, this gets back to the question of like, why are we going through all this? What's the point? You know, it's, and and, I mean, again, like, I'm not aware of this. Certainly, this hasn't happened since, you know, I've been in charge here, but like, the worst case scenario would be somebody contributes and then claims that, hey, wait, you know, I never gave you the copyright to that, and I'm not happy with the direction the project is going. So I'm going to sue you for copyright infringement because you're using my source code. In your project, that's a threat to the whole project. Shut it down. So, you know, again, this is really rare, right? But like a good lawyer is going to mitigate against a risk that's like so catastrophic as that. And, and of course, the more contributions you have and the longer the project goes on, I guess, you know, at least mathematically speaking, the greater the likelihood that something like that is going to occur at some point, right? Right. So the representation sort of mitigates against that risk, you know, one by you know, getting a statement from the person who's making the contribution at the time that they make it, that they understand, you know, the second 
part of the representation that we're interested in is that they're actually the ones that have the authority that they have authority to make the contribution right on behalf of the copyright owner so in the case of an individual of course that you know they have that authority but you know if it's this is without asking who employs them or whether they've you know how they've gotten that authority we're asking them to just confirm that you know that they have that authority so in the case of a small company maybe they have that authority without having to go through anybody from legal but in a bigger company hopefully that's triggering some people to go circle back if they're not sure and confirm that they can actually do this right so what did we learn we learned that the basis of open source and really the basis of gosh all human interactions is trust and in order to have trusted relationships between parties who don't know each other you need some sort of assurances you know some sort of basis of trust you know open source is based on this theory that you know we can work with anyone in the world on this you know as long as there's this shared you know good intent and you know the experience has told us that most people really do have good intent and yet you know most that's most right some people don't some people make mistakes some people have all types of situations that put them in where there's a potential breach of trust either either the optics of such or legitimately violating the terms of, of what we think would be legit business. So the good lawyers in the open source world have created things like CLAs, contributor license agreements to help us. In practice, we've implemented them to help projects. We've also seen where they fall short of doing what they're supposed to do. We've come up with some workarounds. I think the story is not done in terms of, you know, how these things play out. You know, maybe we'll have even better ways of working on um, on assurances in the future. But I really thank you, Mike, for shedding a lot of light and really a, your deep insight and your experience in this very complicated and important topic. So with that, let me just thank you, Mike, for coming. You're too in. flattering. You're too flattering, Gil. <laughs> It's always a pleasure. It's always a pleasure. It is. So thank you again. If you enjoyed this episode of Dash Open, and if you want to learn more about the open source program at Verizon Media or or any of the other things that we work on, visit our website at opensource.yahoo.com. And you can find us on Twitter at YDN. And thank you for listening to the show.